Four Post Podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Tenth of July, Kim Yo-yong, the sister of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea leader Kim Jong-un, had said another summit with the United States is unnecessary and useless. Four days later, she is given more responsibilities, including overseeing relations with the US and South Korea. And then a day later, Secretary Pompeo is downplaying the possibility of another summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un before the presidential election, saying Trump would only want to engage if there were real prospects of progress. Why is he downplaying a summit that was never, ever going to happen? One way to think about what's happening in Korea right now, first of all, in terms of Kim Jong-un being incapacitated, his sister taking over, so forth, This, I think we were just there like a month or so ago. And so it's really hard to know exactly what's going on with that particular situation. Having said that, going to your direct question about... Pompeo's actions regarding a summit and downplaying a summit that wasn't going to happen anyways. Like, why is he doing this? This is where right now, if I look at U.S. foreign policy, and we're going to talk about U.S. foreign policy regarding vis-a-vis a host of countries today, you could kind of say that the foreign policy has been good, bad, and ugly, depending on which country you're talking about. <laughs> and in the case of Korea, I would say it's in the bad category. And this has been a constant theme throughout the Trump administration where it's not ugly. And there's going to be other cases we can talk about where foreign policy has been ugly, but it's definitely not been good. Um, On the one hand, it's not the worst thing in the world that Trump did have those initial summits with Kim Jong-un. I mean, as something I like to say is people are talking, they're less likely to be shooting. And so I think that that is, that's actually a positive, even though substantively those trips didn't amount to much. And people who really follow that very closely, folks like Nicholas Miller at Dartmouth or Vipin Narang at MIT, they, they would tell you, you know, that, that the results of those summits, there wasn't a whole lot that really came out of them substantively. But the fact that they were talking is not a bad thing. However, what makes it bad as opposed to good, is exactly that. There hasn't been a lot of substance. And in fact, if anything, it's given Kim Jong-un cover to actually restart his program more so than it was in the past. And that's where the negative comes in. Now, just like with possible leadership transition in North Korea, there's still a lot of uncertainty regarding exactly what's going on with their nuclear program. And so That's where, again, this is kind of a bad situation. On the one hand, it's good that there's talking, that there's been these summits. On the other hand, Pompeo's comment of there probably won't be another summit. And why would there be? I mean, the first two didn't really amount to much. Why would you have a third? And then also there's a possibility that the situation has actually become worse in terms of North Korea acquiring nuclear weapons. And so it's for that reason that I think U.S. policy towards North Korea has been bad. Okay, so how are we going to rate Iran? Secretary Pompeo has accused European allies of siding with the Ayatollahs. 
after they said US could not reimpose sanctions in Iran. Uh, UK, France, Germany said the US do not have a legal right to trigger snapback sanctions because it pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in 2018. At what point will Pompeo understand America can't expect to have a say when his policies scream it doesn't even want to be at the table? Iran is where things begin to become ugly in the good, bad and ugly type of way of thinking about U.S. foreign policy at the moment. And probably no better example of how ugly it's become than what just transpired a couple weeks ago. Um, actually, not even quite a couple weeks ago, maybe a week and a half ago at the U.N. Security Council, where Pompeo had put forward this resolution um, to or I guess more broadly, U.S. State Department, the United States, because it was a host of people involved in this, put forward a proposal, a U.N. resolution to have these sanctions extended. And that was voted down, not just voted down, not just a, well, 14 in favor and Russia vetoed it. No, this was voted down two votes in favor, Dominican Republic and the United States, and technically three votes against and then everybody else abstained so but that is just that usually doesn't happen and i actually went back and looked at voting records i wrote a twitter thread about this and it turns out this is just extremely rare to have a resolution go down in flames like that, if you will. Usually if something isn't going to pass, it's just not even brought up, especially if something has very little support. So then this leads to the question of well, why they do this, because they had to have known that this wasn't going to pass. And indeed they did. This is where I think the U.S. has found itself in a bit of an ugly situation. So on the one hand, I think they put it forward to try to make a statement. They put it forward as a statement to say, look, everybody else, kind of what you were saying, no one else is working with us on this. And so we are going to, this is a way of showing that we're on our own when it comes to, we're the only ones who are standing up to the Ayatollahs. We're the only ones who are uh, making this effort. And the Europeans and Russia and China and everybody else, they're they're in their pockets, right? And so that's that's kind of a way I think that they were able to make that statement. And that's going to play well to their base at home. But the problem is, is it creates for ugly foreign policy. The only way that you're going to be able to fully constrain Iran's nuclear program is through a multilateral effort. That was the whole point of the Iran deal. You have to have Russia on board with this. It would help if you had China on board with this. And if you can't bring them on board with this, then it's going to be very difficult to be able to achieve some sort of lasting solution. And so what we saw at the UN Security Council is exactly the fruition, if you will, of the U.S. kind of taking a more unilateral stance towards Iran, not cooperating with the other countries, even though they had an agreement on the table. Now, that's not to say that agreement was a perfect agreement. Not to say that at all, but you, given that the only way to ultimately constrain Iran's nuclear program is through a multilateral effort, you have to continue to nurture that effort in order to reach solutions. And what we just witnessed at the UN Security Council about a week and a half ago is, again, the fruition of the U.S. not supporting those multilateral efforts. You said there's good, there's bad, there's ugly. How are you writing America's policy with Iran? 
Oh, this is ugly. This one is ugly. Yeah, this is this is in the ugly category because again, it's like as I said, to, to be able to achieve these multilateral solutions, that's the only way to be able to address this. And the U.S. has just completely, I would say, dropped the ball on this. Moreover, you could say the U.S. has been on the, almost the verge of war with Iran, which is also indicating that the situation has become ugly. Now, those rumblings of potential war that were prevalent in January, those aren't. People have forgotten about them because the world has changed a lot since then, but that really wasn't that long ago. And again, this just highlights how I would classify this as the ugly of U.S. foreign policy. Well, then let's go to Belarus. Secretary Pompeo says the United States backs independent international examinations of, quote, electoral irregularities in Belarus's presidential election, while implicitly warning Russia against intervening in the crisis. What's Pompeo doing in Belarus? Belarus would be, believe it or not, where I would kind of classify U.S. policy right now as being in the good category. Now, I should emphasize, we're talking good, not necessarily great, not terrific or fantastic, not perfect, but definitely in the good category. In that, much like how you heard Pompeo speak about Hong Kong when there was concerns about the new extradition law that the People's Republic of China had put on Hong Kong and talking about how we're going to support democracy, we're going to support these movements in Hong Kong, you're hearing that same rhetoric regarding Belarus. You're also seeing where the U.S. is actually working with NATO, working with the EU in trying to find solutions with this. The EU wants to place uh, sanctions on the government there. And the U.S. is actually supporting these efforts. So it's, it's, it's in many ways, it's kind of the contrast of what we're witnessing with Iran. And it really leads to a host of questions about, well, why is that? Now, part of it could just be that this is considered a – part of it could just truly be that no, this is a human rights issue. This is pro-democracy, and we want to support that. You could even say that maybe this is viewed as – the reason why the U.S. is doing this is if Belarus were to become more, quote, aligned with the West, hence become democratic, that would be a win vis-a-vis -vis Russia. However, it gets a little bit more complicated because – Russia hasn't actually been all that supportive of the existing regime in Belarus, um, despite the fact that they've been calling for Russian assistance. Now, I think part of that is due to Russia kind of being a bit overextended at the moment, uh, and especially if you look at like what oil prices have done, and that's a big part of Russian government revenue. They're not in the same boat as they were, say, in 2008 with Georgia they, or even in 2014 with Crimea and then Ukraine. It's a situation where I think Russia is like – do we can we afford to further extend ourselves by intervening with, say, military troops or little green men, as they like to talk about uh, in Belarus? Now, one interesting angle to Belarus that I hadn't really thought about until I was reading some of the work of one of my former students, Tatiana uh, Kulakovich. She's um, from Belarus. She's an expert on Eastern Europe, writes a lot, does a lot of research on Eastern Europe, has been writing a host of pieces lately on this. And a point that she raised I thought was really interesting about Belarus was that what we're witnessing can't be divorced from COVID-19, that a big part of these pro-democracy movements is due to the inability of the government there to be able to handle the crisis, the health crisis caused by COVID-19. That's part of the reason why there was not the same tolerance level for an election result of claiming 80% victory, right? 80% in favor. It's like people aren't tolerating that because the regime has not been able to handle COVID-19 
And so in some respects, what we're witnessing in Belarus is very similar to protest movements we've been witnessing globally, including in the United States with the George Floyd uh, protests, that part of this is due to this discontent over how the governments have been handling COVID-19. And so Belarus, in short, is a very complicated situation. There's a lot of angles to it. But overall, I view actually U.S. foreign policy towards Belarus as being in the good category, especially if you compare it to the ugly of Iran and the bad of Korea. So we're writing good in a country that nobody knows where it is. <laughs> That's one way to put it, is that you could say, well, we're since this is an area that people don't pay as much or pay as close attention to, then I guess we might as well not rock the boat here. That could be one argument. That would be a very cynical and perhaps not even an inaccurate reading of the situation. I don't know where to begin with this one. I believe for the first time a secretary is going to speak at the RNC. And not only that, he's going to do it from the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, which is going to play well with right-wing Christian evangelicals. But I don't see it doing America a lot of good on an international stage. This is really something that people who I know who follow this closely are very much scratching their heads about, especially because to kind of really lay this out, you essentially have a standing secretary of state who is involved in a purely political uh, campaign event and making a campaign speech. And actually what makes this very perplexing is that the State Department had just issued, signed by Pompeo, directives saying that State Department officials should not do the very thing that Pompeo is getting ready to do. Um, and so this is something that I think has a lot of people kind of scratching their heads, figuring how is this going to play out. Now, I think in terms of the setting that, I mean, obviously this is being done as a way to kind of bolster Trump and his base. And I think as you follow the Republican National Convention, you can see that it's really playing to his base. They're not necessarily making an attempt to try to broaden out from that. So I think everything that's happening there is just playing to kind of reassure the base of supporters regarding President Trump and his policies. One thing that I think about when it comes to these things is I know there's been a lot of commentary lately about, well, President Trump was essentially holding a campaign rally while he was when he should have been holding a press conference or, you know, in this case here, Pompeo is presenting at the RNC. But, you know, to me, I don't know the extent to which this matters. And, and what I mean by that is the following. I think it's been fairly well acknowledged that incumbents always have an advantage when it comes to getting their name out there, getting their policy out there, being able to ring up support. Now, they maybe don't do it quite as blatantly and as openly as having like a rally. But the reality is, is that the president, whenever the president wants to be able to have publicity, TV time, airtime, they can just do it and they can just get it and they can say things that make people feel good and make people happy. So, for folks to be concerned about Pompeo speaking at the RNC or Trump maybe using a press conference that becomes more of a campaign rally, I'm not as concerned about that. I don't get as like perplexed by it or like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's doing it because it's always been acknowledged that incumbents have this advantage of just being able to get an open mic and say things that will help their electoral chances. From a European and Middle Eastern point of view, 
the, the messaging is clearly right-wing Christian evangelical, the very choice of hotel and location that he's chosen to do his talk from. I wonder sometimes if particularly secular Western thinkers understand the important role of religion in the life of people in other countries. I think this is where, again, you could point to the U.S. policy towards the region as being in the ugly category, if you want to expand out from just thinking about Iran, because obviously, as given what I was just saying, that this is being done to really focus on the domestic political base, uh, being where a, a sizable portion of that base is made up of evangelical Christians. And so, yes, this is going to play well there. Um, you're correct in that it also sends a message internationally that it's questionable the extent to which the current administration cares about that message and and hence pointing to why the policy vis-a-vis Iran or really the broader Middle East has been very incoherent and, and, and as I labeled, kind of ugly. Now, on the one hand, you do have some positive developments that have occurred in the past few weeks, such as Israel and UAE normalizing, formally normalizing their relations. Um, and so that is a positive thing. And, and the Trump administration played some role in that. And so that that is something that I think could be positive. Having said that, that was very, very, very low hanging fruit in some ways. Uh, a lot of people who have looked at that say, well, this is great, but they're just putting on paper what was already happening and had been happening for a long time. In fact, it was interesting. They said that um, when Saudi Arabia, when their government announced that they would not be doing that, um, I think one commentator I saw said that they will not be formalizing their already extensive informal ties <laughs> with Israel, right? So so something that you could even point to as a success in the region is something that, I mean, though symbolically potentially important, substantively not really that meaningful. And so I think your broader question and the concern about why Pompeo is doing this and the message it sends just again shows where I think the administration's policy towards Iran and then the broader region in which they're concerned about Iran having an influence, the Middle East region um, and the Persian Gulf region, I think just points to kind of the incoherence and hence ugliness of their policy. I think we can agree that the the United States Secretary of State's role is building relationships with the rest of the world. Would that be a fair assessment of what his role is meant to be? I would say it is the role so long as those relationships are consistent with the administration's policy, right? So it's not just building relationships for relationships' sake. It's being the foreign the international public face of the administration and then hence pursuing policies and building cooperation, building relationships in an effort to further the policy administration. So yes, the goal is to build cooperation, but it's always to be done in line of the policy of the administration, which this administration has made very clear from the beginning what their policy is, hence the whole America first type of view. So I think in that sense, What we're witnessing, again, going back to Pompeo, where he's given his picture, I mean, this is an example of he's doing something very much being the public international face of the U.S. of the Trump administration, but doing it in a way that's consistent with an America first policy. Right. And people who find America first policy very appealing, which is this the base of of Trump's support. The role of Secretary of State has been a fairly stable position in the past. Warren Christopher even had two bashes on t- under two different presidents. 
in recent decades, uh, Bush had two, Powell and Rice, Obama had two, Clinton Kerry, but that was over their entire two terms. Now, Trump has had two and one acting, and as we know, acting tends to be more or less a permanent position under Trump. How easy is it to have a relationship with someone that's not even willing to commit? Yeah, the the turnover, this really the turnover at the Secretary of State position is indicative of the Trump administration's policy regarding the State Department in general. So on the one hand, the State Department, as we were talking about, is intended to be this face of the administration, administration's policies abroad. But the State Department as a whole is does all sorts of things to help carry out that policy abroad. And everything from the third, fourth level deputy secretary to just various staffers and so forth. And the State Department under the Trump administration has been gutted. A lot of positions, a lot of appointments haven't been filled. Um, going back to like various acting positions being effectively the, the top positions. And so the turnover at the secretary of state position, and then it will be interesting. I think your question leads to this interesting idea of what would happen if Trump's reelected. Does Pompeo stay on? Does Pompeo leave? You know, does he end up having a fourth secretary of state or a fifth secretary of state? But I think the turnover at the State Department level is just indicative of the overall treatment that Trump has given to the State Department, which is to not nurture it, not help to develop it. And I know, like, for example, that was part of what led to Rex Tillerson, his first secretary of state, to become frustrated. It turned out that those two did not get along. And I think part of that was due to Tillerson actually not being in favor of the way in which the State Department was not receiving the support, positions not being filled. And as someone who had experience running a humongous corporation like Exxon, that's just not a way to run an operation, right? So I think that this is – I think that the two things kind of go hand in hand. The – the lack of support and the gutting of the State Department is in turn what feeds into then this turnover at the top of the State Department. And that overall can have huge consequences, create big problems for the conduct of U.S. foreign policy. Maybe not the messaging of U.S. foreign policy because you can do that. Trump can do that via tweet. You can just send out a tweet to people all over the world. But the actual conduct of U.S. foreign policy becomes very difficult under those conditions. And then in turn is why I think you can look at U.S. foreign policy right now and see lots of ugly, see some bad, and maybe just a little bit of good. So we're rating Korea as bad, Iran as ugly, Belarus a little bit of good. Is there any real good out there? So a couple areas where you could say that there is some good. One of them is actually regarding... Uh, overall policy in, I mean, you know, look, it's hard. It's hard to actually see where you can sit there and say, that's exactly how this policy should be carried out. Where I do think you could see some good, and this is more thinking into the future, is going back to something else that we've talked about on this podcast, which was, and going back to Pompeo, this idea of U.S. policy vis-a-vis China and in terms of supporting countries that are very concerned about a rising China. And specifically Pompeo's call for an alliance of democracies. That could end up being an area where you could sit there and see that 
the administration actually follows a policy that makes a lot of sense given the dynamics unfolding in East Asia and on the global stage. In fact, so much sense that my own view is that regardless of whether Trump is reelected or Biden is elected, I think you would see a similar policy vis-a-vis various U.S. allies in the region vis-a-vis China that I think that you would see a lot of these countries, regardless of who's president, seeking U.S. assistance, wanting to bolster ties with the United States, including recently we're starting to see this with movement of India towards the United States. Now, again, I want to emphasize that part of this has little to do with what the U.S. is doing and more to do with what China is doing, right, and making them nervous about it. But that's an area where I think at least some of the rhetoric, as well as some of the initial policies that the Trump administration is pursuing. And of course, being tough on China has been a constant policy of the Trump administration. That's an area where I think you would sit there and say, you know, it's not completely insane what they're trying to do. But the question is whether they can actually pull this off. Can they actually bring these countries together in a way that is true to an alliance of democracy or a league of democracy? That's still an open question. But that's an area where I think it's harder to sit there and say that the Trump administration is being completely ugly or even bad with their policy. Now, there are people who don't like the trade war with China, but then there's other people, and these are people who are very reasonable when it comes to trade policy, who are like, yeah, but you know, there's been a lot of trade issues with China for a long time, and so there really was a need to kind of take a tougher stance vis-a-vis China. So that is one area where I think it's harder to say that U.S. policy is a complete disaster. 